Well, I notice some of you have been playing musical chairs this morning and you've deviated from your normal spots. I'm going to be very confused now as I look out on the congregation. We are creatures of habit, and so uh, it's not normal for us to sit in a different pew. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to uh, Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, we are going to be looking at verses 1 through 5 today. We spent the last several weeks uh, working our way through Romans chapter 8, which in my opinion is the greatest chapter in the book of Romans, um, perhaps the greatest chapter in the New Testament, some would say even the greatest chapter in the, in the entire Bible. I mean, Romans 8 is just promise after promise after amazing promise, the, these uh, tremendous assurances that the Apostle Paul gives to us as believers in Jesus Christ. I mean, it just begins, you know, no condemnation in Christ. We're adopted into God's family. We are bound for glory in Christ. And then that, that climax of the chapter at the end, um, nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ. And Paul just pounds home that message. We are secure in God's love in Christ. And, and, and if you've never read the book of Romans, I know many of you have read it many of times, but if you had never read the book of Romans and you, you finish hearing chapter 8, you might think, well, that's it. I mean, what else is there to say? It's kind of a, a mic drop moment, right? Like, let's just end on this high note. But, but actually, Paul goes on for, for quite some time, actually. And um, he has a lot more to say. And in particular, in the, in the next three chapters, chapters 9, 10, and 11, a, a unit within Romans, um, he goes on to talk about Israel. And, and some of us are probably, you know, if we're familiar with these chapters, kind of scratching our heads. I mean, what does that have to do with everything Paul's been talking about? The, the glories of the gospel, uh, God's grace. In Jesus Christ, justification by faith, the, the, the security we have in God's love. And then he does all this Israel talk. And, and on top of the Israel talk, I mean, Paul just dives into these very controversial doctrinal issues. Um, election, predestination, uh, free will. And, and we might be left wondering kind of what is going on here? And, and it's confused lots of interpreters. One 20th century scholar said, well, Paul just ran out of things to say. And so he just pulled out an old sermon on Israel and just kind of, you know, plopped it down right here in Romans. Uh, that, that scholar, who was brilliant in many ways, he couldn't be more wrong on, on that point. Uh, chapters 9 to 11 are, they're crucial to the message of the book of Romans. I know often we read them as if it's just kind of an aside, but what Paul says in these three chapters is, is absolutely critical to everything Paul's been saying in, in Romans. You know, in chapter 8, as I said, he, he emphasized our security in Christ, the, the security we have in God's love, in His promises. And you have to imagine for a moment the letter being read to the congregation, to the church in Rome. And, and after the person reading it finishes chapter 8, someone in the congregation speaks up and says, well, what about Israel? In other words, remember Paul said his gospel, this gospel is the good news about what Israel's God has done through Israel's Messiah 
to bring salvation to the world. He said at the beginning, this is the good news that is for the Jew first and then for the Gentile. He said that what has happened in Jesus the Messiah is the fulfillment of God's ancient promises to Israel. And so someone speaks up and says, well, what about Israel? There's an elephant in the room. Because in, in by and large, in Paul's day, Israel had rejected the gospel. You know, most of the Christians, or many of the the Christians at that time in Paul's day, were Gentile Christians, non-Jewish Christians. Uh, Most Jewish people then, and and for the most part today, have not embraced Jesus as Messiah. And so the congregation there is asking, and we should be wondering, well, how could this be if the gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news about Israel's Messiah? Why has Israel rejected it? And it it raises all kinds of questions about about God, about His character. I mean, is He trustworthy? He's made all these promises to Israel, and, and, and Israel isn't saved. Israel's rejected the Messiah. The Messiah's come, but Israel's still in unbelief. Has, has God's promise failed? And, and maybe you're starting to see the connection. We're rejoicing in the promises of Romans 8, but if God's promises to Israel have failed, apparently they seem to have failed, if they've failed, what confidence do we have? What confidence do we really have that nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ if Israel, God's chosen people, seem to be separated from Christ? And, and that's the issue Paul is, is wrestling with in these chapters. And, and in many ways, these, these chapters are deep waters. Very, um, I mean, Paul is just, he's, he's plumbing the depths of God's wisdom and purpose and plan in the world. And, and he's focused on God's faithfulness. You know, these chapters say a lot about divine sovereignty, human uh, responsibility. They provide fodder for theological debate. But the focus of these chapters is not election. I don't know if you realize that. The, the focus of these chapters is not God's sovereignty and salvation, although that's a big part of what Paul says. The focus is God's faithfulness. Is the God who has made promises to Israel, who has made promises to us in Christ, is He faithful? Is He trustworthy? How do we make sense of, of His promises, ancient promises to Israel and Israel's rejection of the Gospel? And, and what does it really mean for us? Are we secure in Christ? Can God be trusted? You can see it's not just some, you know, well, let's just talk about Israel for the sake of talking about Israel. It's Can we trust God with our very salvation, with our eternal destiny? And, and each of these chapters, um, Paul kind of takes up a specific question. Just to give you a little overview, chapter 9, has God's word failed? Has God's word of promise failed? And just to, you know, spoiler, spoiler alert, I'm going to spoil the story for you. Paul concludes in verse 6 and then unpacks it in, in much detail. No, God's word has not failed. So to set your minds at ease. A few weeks ago in a sermon, I was quoting something that skeptics of Christianity say. And Stephanie told me later that one, my youngest son leaned over and was like, what dad is saying is not right. That's not true. God's word has not failed. But Paul wrestles 
with that question. So chapter 9, has God's word failed? Chapter 10, why isn't Israel saved? What went wrong? And then chapter 11, is God done with Israel forever? So that's just kind of the lay of the land for these chapters. And the the verses we're looking at today, just the opening uh, five verses, they're really the introduction to the problem. Paul just kind of, he he starts to address the issue, but we're going to see Paul opens up his heart to us. You see, Paul's not some ivory tower theologian just debating controversial doctrines because they're they're intellectually you know kind of interesting to him this is a very personal issue for paul and and his his heart is broken over israel's unbelief so let me read for us uh, romans chapter 9 verses 1 to 5 you can find that on page 945 In the Pew Bible, uh, Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Let me pray for us. Our God and Father, as we begin to just dip our toes into these deep waters this morning. We ask for your help. We, we pray that you would give us understanding that um, these issues that, that Paul begins to address here today and as we'll look at in the coming weeks, that they wouldn't just be um, debates for us, but that you would deepen our understanding of who you are, that you would deepen our understanding of of your might, your sovereignty, the, the freedom of your mercy, the glories of the gospel. And Lord, would you change us as we come to your word? Even today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we look at, at these verses, I, I want you to see three things here in these verses. Uh, number one, Paul's grief. Paul's grief. Number two, Paul's wish. And then third, Israel's privileges. So let's look first at, at Paul's grief in, in verses 1 and 2. As Paul begins to um, open his heart to us, you have to realize something about the Apostle Paul. You know, uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, many people accused Paul of being anti Semitic, anti Jew, anti Israel, even though he himself is Jewish. But, you know, Paul preached a a Torah-free gospel. We are justified by faith alone in Christ, apart from works of the law. He preached a Torah-free gospel. He's he's the apostle to the Gentiles, and that that Gentile mission made his Jewish countrymen suspicious of Paul. He, He doesn't seem to care about Jews. He seems to be, you know, speaking poorly of Moses and our, our history and our heritage. And, and some of the Jewish Christians in Rome, there were 
There were some, they may have even wondered whether Paul cares any longer about the salvation of of Israel. Why, Why is he so focused on Gentiles? And so Paul here is, he's at pains to make clear that he loves his countrymen, his fellow Jews who have rejected the gospel. His heart is is broken by their unbelief. And and Paul doesn't usually do this kind of thing, but but notice how he puts it, verse one, this threefold affirmation. Positively, he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I mean, that's really all you need to say, right? But he, he goes on negatively, I am not lying. And and then he calls on two witnesses to back him up. My conscience, that's witness number one, bears me witness in the Holy Spirit, witness number two. I mean, Paul wants the, the Christians in Rome, and probably in particular the Jewish Christians in Rome, to understand that what he's about to say, he's not exaggerating. He's not pretending this is truly how he feels about Israel's unbelief. And look at what he says in, in verse 2. Two things about what's going on inside of him. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I mean, this is, is strong language. This isn't, you know, I, I had a, you know, my day was kind of a little rough. I, you know, I'm grumpy or something. Um, this is emotionally charged language. I mean, that great sorrow. Paul's talking about a, a deep, intense grief that, that plagues his heart. Um, overwhelming emotional pain. And, and it won't go away. He says it's unceasing anguish. You know, maybe sometimes it's, it's in the background, other times. He can't think of anything else. Um, and, and he doesn't name the cause of his pain here, but uh, explicitly he hints at it in verse 3, but, but later in, in chapter 10, verse 1, he, he says very explicitly, brothers, speaking to the church in Rome, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, for Israel, is that they may be saved. What, what causes such grief for Paul is the fact that his kinsmen, as he calls them in this passage, his countrymen, his, his kinsmen, according to the flesh, they've rejected their Messiah. They're outside of the realm of, of salvation. And Paul says it, it causes him deep, deep grief and, and sorrow. And, and I want to pause here for a moment, and I know I kind of harp on this a lot, but it is really important, I think, for us to, to not um, miss this. As we read Scripture, there's a a shallow form of Christianity that says Christians should never grieve. That um, believers should not experience negative emotions. You know, things like sadness and grief and discouragement. You know, we have um, emotions like that are, are bad. We ought to suppress them if we can, ignore them, maybe even repent of them. You know, as Christians, we ought to be joyful people. I mean, look at all the promises we have in Jesus Christ. I mean, Romans chapter 8, all things work together for good. What do we have to complain about? Um, all things should be made well. I mean, we should just be happy all the time, joyful all the time. There, there's, there's, you know, a, a, a take on the Christian faith that says, there's no place for emotional pain in the Christian life. If, if you're sad, there's something wrong with you. Not, not 
out there. There's something wrong with you. Um, you aren't trusting the Lord. Maybe you need to read your Bible more. Maybe you need to spend more time in prayer. You see, that's the problem. You're just relying on yourself. Now, I'm pretty sure that the Apostle Paul trusted the Lord. I'm pretty sure that the Apostle Paul meditated on Scripture. I'm pretty sure that the Apostle Paul prayed. And yet, here he is, saying, my heart is just, it it is racked with grief and sorrow, and it's deep, and it's constant, and it's unresolved. It doesn't go away. This is the same Apostle who wrote, Rejoice always! But apparently for Paul, joy and sorrow are not mutually exclusive. The the same Apostle who who can say, Rejoice always, can say, I'm full of grief here. Both of those, joy and sorrow, both of those are are deeply Christian emotions. And I I hope you you understand that. Uh, In the Gospels, when when we read of Jesus, we read that He delighted in His heavenly Father. We read that He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. And yet, when Jesus stands before the tomb of His friend Lazarus, He weeps. He, He... he weeps. He, he, you know, he's full of sorrow and grief. The, the pain and the brokenness that, that sin and death have, have produced in, in his friend Lazarus and Lazarus' sisters and then beyond that. And uh, Jesus doesn't smile there at the tomb and say, it's okay everyone, I've, I've got this covered. I'm going to take care of it. It's not a big deal. He sobs. There's room in the Christian experience, ample room in the Christian experience for both joy and sorrow. Uh, there's a sense in which we, we as Christians experience them simultaneously. You know, you, you read Romans 8 and your, your heart's just bursting with, with confidence and joy. And then at the same time, you remember that you have friends, you have family who don't know those promises in Christ. You, you have people in your life whom you love and whom you care about that don't have that hope in Christ. And so there's, there's joy and there's sorrow side by, side by side. You have the hope of glory, but right now life's really hard. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And, and we might think, Paul, you are a crazy person. What are you talking about? How can you be sorrowful and yet always rejoicing and yet... In this life, on, on this side of resurrection glory, there will always be joy and sorrow. In any given moment, we might not be able to experience both at the same time, but over the, the long term, over the, the weeks, years, uh, there will be joy and sorrow. It's the normal Christian experience. It's Paul's own experience. It was Jesus' experience. And, and part of maturing as a Christian is learning to live in that tension. Um, it, it's really difficult to do, right? Learning to live with both, learning to give both joy and sorrow their proper place. I don't like tension. I'm sure you don't like tension. We want to just flatten things out. And, you know, I, I just want to be told that if Jesus is in my life, I'm going to be, you know, happy and, and rejoicing all the time. But, but genuine Christian experience is, is big enough for this sorrowful yet always rejoicing 
dynamic. I, I heard Sinclair Ferguson say this week, he said, we unbalance our lives if all we know is this anguish, but we also unbalance our lives if we never know it. The, the Christian life is one of, of joy and sorrow, and, and Paul opens up to us here his grief, his heart. He shows us here what, what is, causes him such pain. And second, let's, let's look at Paul's wish. Paul's wish, Paul's grief in verses 1 and 2, but Paul goes on to talk about something he wishes in verse 3. And, and verse 3 is just, I mean, it's incredible what Paul says here. It's shocking even. Look at what he says. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Accursed and cut off from Christ. Uh, this, is, this is what's causing Paul such, such grief and sorrow. It's, it's the plight of his fellow Jews. They, they've rejected the Gospel and, and by implication they are under God's curse. They are separated from Christ because of their unbelief. And, and notice here what, what Paul says, or what he doesn't say, I should, I should say. He doesn't say, well, there's a way of salvation for Christians, there's another way of salvation for Jews, and, and maybe other paths for, for other groups. I mean, that's not what Paul says here. He, he, there's one way, one path of salvation, one Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and according to Paul, everyone who, who rejects Christ is under God's curse. There's no promise of salvation apart from faith in Jesus Christ. If there was, if there was some way that his Jewish kinsmen were going to be saved apart from Christ, Paul would be wracked with so much grief here. And you notice he says that he could wish to take their place. He wishes, he says he could wish to bear God's curse for their sake. In other words, in their place or, or on their behalf. He, he wishes he could be a substitute for them. And like I said, it's shocking. I mean, I, I don't think I could say this about the, the unbelievers I know and love. I mean, I, I wish that I could, but I don't know that I would. And, you know, after everything Paul has said about the glories of the Gospel and, and Christ and, and God's love in Christ and how wonderful it all is, and he's, he's saying here that he's, he's willing to be damned if it meant that his, his Jewish brothers and sisters could be spared. It's just shocking. And he, he kind of sounds like Moses here. Do you remember um, Moses in the book of Exodus after the golden calf incident? And, and Moses stands before God at Sinai and he says, Lord, blot me out of your book in order to spare uh, these, these idolatrous Israelites. I mean, Paul sounds a lot like Moses here. Let me take their place. And, and God told Moses, no. And, and Paul, uh, we're going to see in a moment, God is going to tell him no as well. But, but Paul's instinct here is it's deeply Christian. Deeply Christian. I mean, Jesus' sacrificial death, it's right at the, the front, the heart and center of the Christian faith, right? And Jesus bore the curse for the sake of others. And you can see Paul being shaped by this gospel, wishing that he could do this 
for his uh, Jewish countrymen, but, but he knows. Paul knows it's not possible for him to be the substitute. There's only one who can do this. And, and Paul words this very carefully. If you notice, he says, I could wish this. Not, not that he does. I, I could uh, wish this. He, he knows it's impossible. He knows for him to be cut off from Christ would contradict everything he has said about the believer's security and God's love. So he says, I could almost, I could almost bring myself to, to pray this, but, but he doesn't necessarily pray this. He, he longs for his kinsman's salvation, but, but he knows that he can't pray this. There, there's only one curse bearer. There's only one substitute, the, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one who, who can bear the curse in our place, and He has done so at the, at the cross, and Jesus alone. That, that's the only hope for Paul's kinsmen. That's the only hope for our unbelieving friends and family, the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. I know a, a number of you grew up in, in Christian families, but, but many of you didn't. And, and you can probably relate to Paul here, this, this grief, this burden. Um, you know, for you, maybe it's a, a father or a mother who doesn't know Christ, or a brother, a sister, maybe a, a child. You know, these are the people who raised you. These are the people you've known longer than anyone else in, in the world, and, and they don't know Jesus. And it, it weighs on you. You're, you're thankful for all that you have in Christ, but, but there's this part of your heart that's just kind of always broken for these people you love who are outside of Christ. And, and you want them to hear the Gospel, right? You want them. I mean, we as elders get questions um, often from people. How do I relate to my unbelieving family members? It's, it's so difficult. You know, How do you go about this sharing the Gospel with with these people who know you, whom you love, but, but are outside of Christ. And you know, speaking from personal experience, as, as a new Christian, I was zealous. Um, I, but I was also young and immature. And, and those two things together, that, that's not a good combination. Um, not at all. And you know, I had the truth. And, and I wanted other people to know the truth. Looking back, maybe I just wanted them to know that I had the truth. Um, I think there was probably some compassion there somewhere in the deep re- recesses of my heart, but it was a little difficult to see through all of uh, the self-righteousness and, and pride. You know, I thought I was going to argue people into the kingdom. You know, just dismantle their beliefs and their objections to the Christian faith show them how wrong they are, convince them I'm right, and then of course they're going to trust Jesus after that, right? I mean, it's just a no-brainer after I've demolished their intellectual arguments. And, and I had people tell me that I, would have been, that I would have made a good lawyer. And they didn't mean that as a compliment. And, and not, you know, no offense, I know there's a couple lawyers here. I'm sure you all are, are very admirable lawyers. But I'll tell you what. Um, my approach wasn't very effective. I, I think I probably did more damage than, than good. And, and you know the saying, um, bit of a cliche, but um, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. 
again, sort of a cliche, but, but when it comes to friends and family, it, it's absolutely true. I mean, the last thing they want to hear is a lecture by some pious know-it-all. They don't want to hear it. Um, and, and it's not just because they don't want to hear things about Christ. I mean, people can tell when you're just trying to win an intellectual battle. People can tell if you don't care about them. You're just trying to make a point or, or prove yourself right. I mean, Paul, the, the man who is writing here in Romans 9, Paul was zealous. Paul was brilliant. I mean, it, Paul probably could have out-argued any of his Jewish kinsmen. I mean, he was so bright, so knowledgeable, but look at him here in Romans 9. With tears in his eyes. His, his voice trembling. His heart broken. I mean, look at how the Gospel affected him. He, he doesn't have this sense of, of being superior to these, these people who are rejecting the Gospel. There's no hint of, of arrogance here. No holier-than-thou attitude. I mean, the Gospel that Paul champions, it, it made him tender toward non-Christians. Tender toward his Jewish kinsmen who rejected Christ. And, and that's what happens when, when, the, when God's love in Christ really gets a hold of you. This is, this is what happens. If we really grasp the Gospel message, if, if the, the good news of God's grace in Christ really starts to shape our, our life, Jesus' sacrificial love shaping our heart, if, if the Gospel for us is, is more than just a set of of intellectual propositions, things we assent to, if it, if it really gets a hold of us down at the heart level, it's going to make us tender. It's going to make us compassionate toward people who are outside Christ. People who reject Christ. The, those hard you know, family members that you have to endure at the, at the Christmas dinner or something like that. It doesn't mean we keep our lips uh, sealed. Not at all. I mean, we want to share the Gospel. But, but listen, it is Gospel-shaped love that typically opens up a door for speaking the Gospel. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. It's, it's Christ-like Gospel-shaped love demonstrated that gives us credibility to speak the Gospel with others. And so, Paul's grief, he, he's, he's torn up about Israel's unbelief and, and Paul's wish, he, he, he could almost wish that he could take their place. And then third and finally, Israel's privileges in verses 4 and 5. And, and this is what um, makes Israel's unbelief so poignant for Paul. This is what causes him such grief. Their, their spiritual privileges. Um, their, their role in God's plan for the world. I mean, how could they reject their own Messiah? I mean, Paul is just beside himself here. And he says in verse 4, they are Israelites. I realize that name, Israel, that's the name that God gave to Jacob and his descendants. It, it marks them out as, as God's chosen people. Out of all the nations in the world, He chose Israel. And, and, and then Paul goes on here, he, he lists eight privileges that belong 
to Israel. We'll just go through them quickly. But first, he says, to them belong the adoption. In Exodus 4, God calls Israel, the nation, corporately, his son. And it, it, it underscores his affection for the nation of Israel. Um, it highlights their special relationship to God. He says, second, uh, theirs is the glory. Not, not only the adoption, but also the glory. And you think here of, of God's Shekinah glory, his, his personal visible presence. And you remember the Exodus story that, that God was with the children of Israel in the wilderness, in the, in the pillar of fire and the glory cloud. And, the, and God's glory descended upon the tabernacle. And then later His glory descends upon the, the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, third, the covenants. Uh, you know, God made covenants with, with Abraham, with the Israelites at Sinai, with, with David. He entered into these gracious relationships with the people of Israel. Um, fourth, the, the Torah. God gave Israel His law. Now, we've seen in Romans that, that the law, you know, shows up our sin, but, but the emphasis here is on the, the gracious gift of God's law. No other nation had the privilege of receiving God's revelation of His will, His Word. Um, he goes on, fifth, the worship. And some of your translations might say the, the temple service. And Paul has in mind here the, the whole priestly system, the sacrificial system, the, the temple, the, the sacrifices providing atonement for sin. No other people, no other nation had that kind of access to, the, to God the Creator. Um, sixth, the promises. You know, the Old Testament is just full of promises to Israel, especially promises about the coming Messiah. Um, seventh, Paul says the the patriarchs. You know, thinking of men here like like Abraham, Isaac, and and Jacob, the the fathers of the faith, the men with whom God entered into covenant, and and the Israelites can trace their lineage back to these men. They're the, the Israelites could say that they were children of Abraham by physical descent. And then the, the eighth privilege, and this is really the, the highest privilege of all, that the promised Messiah came from Israel. The, the long-promised Messiah who would deliver Israel, who would bring blessing and salvation to the world, He came from Israel. It's good for us to remember this. Uh, Jesus, the, the man Jesus, is Jewish. I mean, not a surprise, but sometimes we, we forget it. He was, he was born to a Jewish mother. He was raised by a Jewish man and woman. He had Jewish brothers and sisters. The blood that he shed on the cross was Jewish blood. I mean, his, his DNA connects him to Israel. And, and they could boast of, about that if, if they realized what what was going on and um you know just as a little aside I, I i think you know from what paul says here that from their race comes the messiah i mean you just it, it's so clear how utterly absurd any kind of christian anti-semitism is isn't it i mean it's just it goes it flies in the face of everything we believe as christians i mean the Lord and Savior whom we worship, whom we depend on for our eternal salvation was a Jewish man. I mean, to, to have any kind of, you know, hatred or bias or discrimination against Jewish people for being Jewish. I mean, it's just, it's a dishonor to our Lord and Savior. End of aside. 
Notice, Paul's been saying, to them belong all these privileges, but the wording here is a little different about the Messiah. The other privileges belong to them, but he says Messiah is from their race. Um, Messiah comes from Israel, but he doesn't belong exclusively to Israel. Messiah belongs to the world. He's Savior of both Jews and Gentiles. And, And notice... I mean, it's just, it's fascinating how Paul just kind of tacks this on to the end. But he, but he adds, this Messiah is God overall, blessed forever. Um, not only is the Messiah ethnically descended from Israel, he, he is God in human flesh. He's the, he's God the Son incarnate. And, and, and this is why Paul is full of such grief and sorrow. Israel was heir to such wonderful privileges. I mean, Israel's God came down to them in human flesh to die and rise for them. And of all people, they should have embraced Jesus as Messiah, but instead they they rejected Him. And and that's the issue Paul is just going to wrestle with in, in, in chapters 9, 10, and 11. He's going to take us into some, some deep theological waters to, to make sense of how God made all these promises and yet they, they've apparently failed. They haven't, but it looks like they have. And he's going, to, he's going to take us through those questions. But I just want to speak for a moment here as we think about Israel's privileges. I want to, I want to take a moment to speak to the kids here. So, kids, um, listen up for a moment. Um, I, I want you to hear this. Um, there's something you need to realize. Um, in many ways, you're like the Israelites. You, you have all kinds of spiritual privileges. Um, you know, uh, but spiritual privileges, they're not the same thing as personal salvation. Okay? I, I, I'm going to explain. Let me, let me explain here. You have parents or maybe grandparents or, or other people in your life who, who love you and they bring you to church and it's a tremendous blessing, a, a spiritual privilege. You might not think so. I, you might think, well, church is actually pretty boring. And, and look, I get it. I was a kid once. I, my parents brought me to church. I had to sit through long church services. I remember as a kid, I had a watch with, with Mickey Mouse on the face of it. And during church, I would stare at that watch. And it seemed like the minute hand never moved. And I'm sitting there wondering, how much longer is this preacher going to talk? And in the church I grew up in, he talked for a long time. I, it, I know, it can be boring. But, but you, you get to hear about Jesus. You come to church and you hear about this amazing person, Jesus Christ. I mean, there's no better friend. There's no greater Savior. I mean, He loves kids. He loves you. He died for you. He wants you to know His love. I mean, you have Sunday school teachers who tell you about Him. You have a church that prays for you and loves you. You you have privileges. Not, not every kid has heard about Jesus. Do you realize that? Some, some of the kids you go to school with maybe have never heard about Jesus. Not every kid has, has gone to church, been to church. Listen, God has given you tremendous spiritual privileges. You might not you know, fully realize it right now, 
but you have been blessed with so many privileges, just like Israel. But spiritual privileges don't automatically make you a Christian. You know, coming to church is great. Uh, Keep doing it. We love to have you here. But it doesn't make you a Christian. You know, if mom or dad loved Jesus, that is wonderful. You should thank God for that. But that doesn't automatically make you a Christian. Um, you, You don't become a Christian by being born into a Christian family. It would be so much easier if that were the case. But but it's not. How do you become a Christian? And, and I know, kids, I, I know that you know this. I know that your parents have taught you this. I know that your Sunday school teachers have taught you this. But how do you become a Christian? You trust in Jesus Christ. You believe in Jesus Christ. Uh, big word, repent. You repent of your sin. You tell God that you're a sinner and, and you want His forgiveness. You put your faith in Jesus Christ. Kids, you have to trust Jesus for yourself. Your parents can't do it for you. They can pray that you will. They can urge you to do it. But you yourself have to trust Jesus. And, and listen, even kids can be Christians. Do, do, kids, do you realize that? Even kids can trust in Jesus Christ. I mean, you don't have to be an old person like me to trust in Jesus Christ. Even kids can be Christians. And and I just want to say to you today, don't waste your privileges. Don't waste the the multitude of gifts God has has given to you. Uh, Trust in Jesus. Receive His love and forgiveness. And and if you've kids, if you've got questions, I'd love to talk to you about this. And you know, just tell your mom or dad, I've got to talk to Pastor Ryan and we will make it happen. And and, you know, I'm not scary, so come and talk to me. I have a beard, but I'm not scary, okay? And, and all of this is true for the grown-up kids here too, right? For, for you adults. I mean, maybe a friend brought you today. And, and do you realize why? It's because they love you. It's because they want you to know Jesus. They, you know... Don't take a friend like that for granted. You're not going to meet many people like that. They, they want you to know Jesus' love. They want you to know Jesus' forgiveness. And ask your friend about Jesus. You know, if you, if you want to get them talking, ask your friend about Jesus. They'd be happy to tell you about Him. I would be happy to talk to you about Him. Don't take for granted the spiritual privileges you've been given. Let me pray. Our Father in Heaven, sometimes Your ways are perplexing to us and you know, we wonder at times why, why You love us, why You chose us, why we know and love and trust Jesus and not others in our lives who, who we love and, and believe and we agonize over their unbelief. Father, would You Help us not to lose heart. Would You help us to continue praying? Would You help us to, to feel the, the proper emotions that the, that the Gospel would produce in us, that we would take great joy in what is ours in Christ, but also feel acute sorrow for, for those who, who don't know Him? We ask, Lord, that even as we continue to dive into these chapters, that You would revolutionize our understanding of who you are 
the greatness of your glory, the, the freeness of your mercy, and just how we will praise you for age upon age for the, the wonders of your wisdom and power. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.